The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. On uh, April 6th in 1923, in a small town in Armadale, Scotland, Eric Little spoke for the first time of his faith in Christ. Uh, This excerpt from a biography entitled Eric Little describes his speaking style. He said there was no lecturing, no fist thumping on the table, no wagging or pointing a finger to stress a point, no raised voice to impress on them what he thought they should be doing. In fact, it wasn't a speech at all. It was more of a quiet chat. And in his slow, clear words, Eric, for the first time in his life, told the world what God meant to him. He spoke of the strength that he felt within himself uh, for the sure knowledge of God's love and support through Christ, of how he never questioned anything that happened either to himself or to others. He didn't need explanations from God. He simply believed in him and accepted whatever came. News of Little's talk was reported in every newspaper in Scotland the next morning. God was at that moment preparing Eric Little to honor him in a way that few have ever been called to do uh, since. You see, Eric Little was a missionary in, in, in uh, China, but was also the best runner that England had ever seen up to that point. He set a record in the 100-yard dash that stood for 35 years after he set it. And as he was preparing to honor God with the gift of his running in the 1924 Paris Olympics, he was shocked to find out that the heats for the 100-meter uh, competition were on Sunday. And his Scottish background, his commitment to the Lord and to his understanding of the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments uh, concerning the Sabbath day uh, forbade him to run in the Olympics. It was really kind of a scandal, a shock in the nation. And most of you know this story who have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. This is not an unusual story or something that we are not familiar with, but actually I think that's one of the best movies, uh, Christian movies, that I've ever seen because it shows so beautifully the commitment that Eric Little had to uh, his faith in Christ. Uh, also, uh, what, what the movie I don't think brings out so clearly is that Eric Little was not used to running the 400 meter and uh, he prepared expecting really to do very little in the event. He won the bronze medal in the 200 um, meter dash but he felt his best event was the 100 meter by far and he chose not to run in that. But he made his way through the heats in the 400 meter and eventually set a world record, 47.6 seconds in the 400 meter uh, dash and was hailed as a conquering hero by England. Now I love the story, but it leaves me with questions. As you watch that movie, the foundation of his commitment was his understanding of the Lord's day, his understanding of Exodus chapter 20, verses eight through 11. So turn in your Bibles there if you would, and let's look at this fourth commandment and let's begin what I think will be at least a two-week study um, on this fourth commandment. This is a very complex issue. As we come to the Ten Commandments, it's the only one that we have to really wonder about how it affects our lives today as Christians. There have been various convictions on this, and we're going to look at it, God willing, this week and two weeks from now. There's no evening service next week after Easter, so we'll, God willing, look at it again in two weeks. I'm going to read all the Ten Commandments, and then we will focus in on the fourth commandment. Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of any, anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we're zeroing in now on the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. This is a complex issue and not easily resolved. Some Christians see this uh, on the side of uh, legal restriction, something in the Ten Commandments, as binding as any of the other Ten Commandments are on the consciences of Christians today, uh, and they give reasons for their views. Others see this as a matter of Christian freedom and personal conscience, and they give their reasons. On the side of legal or lawful obedience, people who advocate that view say, all of the other Ten Commandments clearly are still in focus for Christians. So why would this one be omitted? Why would there be any change concerning the Sabbath? Uh, we're not permitted now in the New Covenant to murder or commit adultery or covet or have other gods or any of the others. So why would there be a change here? Do we some, see some kind of a special kind of dotted line uh, above the Fourth Commandment and below it that cuts it out and makes it different than any of the others? Secondly, uh, there seem to be serious and lasting warnings in the prophetic books, the book of Isaiah in particular, uh, that seem to go well beyond even the Old Covenant and uh, strike even to eschatology in the end. And so they say these uh, warnings are binding on us today. Um, thirdly, Christ makes statements about the Sabbath and seems to regulate behavior on the Sabbath, but nowhere removes the Sabbath as a regulation. He declared all foods clean, but he doesn't uh, remove the Sabbath as something that Christians should uh, observe. And he said that Sabbath was made for man, and therefore we still need it today. Fourth, they talk about the theological symbolism of Sabbath as a final eternal rest and that there's a need for a weekly reminder of that rest just as much now as there was in the Old Covenant, a need for a weekly reminder. Um, they also say that to some degree the Sabbath rest is a, is a statement of, of uh, humility on the part of man, of humbling before God the King, of willingness to acknowledge his rulership over life and over our work lives and a statement also humbly that we are not omnicompetent, we don't have limitless energy, and we need to rest physically. We can't go on forever working. It also puts a limit on our work uh, and says that our work has some value, but ultimately the greatest work of all is worshiping God. But finally, uh, and most seriously, these who argue the legal restriction 
um, uh, binding on Christians today in the New Covenant say that the reason given in the Ten Commandments draws from creation itself. It doesn't seem to be tied to anything specifically with Israel, but it goes back to the seven-day creation week, uh, the six days on which the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh rested and seems to therefore set up a binding pattern permanently. So that's all one side. On the other side, those that argue the side of Christian freedom, they note that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not reiterated in the New Covenant in one of the epistles or in one of Christ's statements or in one of the um, other uh, binding statements in the New Testament. All the others are repeated, but this one, uh, they say, is conspicuously left out. Uh, secondly, Christ consistently uh, seems to open up the Sabbath. Every time Christ mentions it, he's giving more freedom on the Sabbath uh, and uh, is rejecting restrictive human interpretations of the Sabbath, always on the side of freedom, and says that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so uh, they point to Christ's example as opening up. More seriously and theologically, they see the argumentation in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 saying the Sabbath has in effect been fulfilled by faith in Christ. We cease from our works by coming into faith in Christ. It's the promised land, so to speak. And so anybody who wants to discuss the Sabbath has to deal with the weight of Hebrews 3 and 4 and understand what the author says there. And then fourth, there are certain commands that Paul gives that seem to give freedom concerning the Sabbath. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, let no one judge you by what you do on a Sabbath day. And it says in Romans 14, one, day, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day sacred does so to the Lord. He who regards each day alike also does so to the Lord. And he also gives a warning. Uh, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so that's in Romans 14, a chapter on freedom. So now you're thoroughly confused. We have the weight on each side, and we can say, well, what are we going to do? Is this or is this not every bit as binding as you shall not murder, or I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods? How shall we understand it? Well, as we look at church history, um, those theologians that I've followed, uh, those that uh, uh, have taught from the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, and then following the Reformed views, the uh, uh, Knox in Scotland and the Puritans, etc., were strongly what we would call, I don't know if this is the right term, but Sabbatarian, um, not so much Seventh-day Sabbatarian, but saying that the regulations and the Ten Commandments are still binding every one of them on us today, but that they have been transferred over from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week in honor of our Lord's resurrection, which we celebrate next week, Easter Sunday, and really do as Christians celebrate every day. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, The Perpetuity and Change of the Sabbath. There are certain aspects that are perpetual and binding on us, but then there's also a change in the New Covenant in that the day of the week was changed. We meet on what's known as the Lord's Day and not on the seventh day of the week. Uh, the London Confession, 1689, had this to say about uh, uh, the Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, really, chapter 22nd in the London Confession, of religious worship and the Sabbath day. This is a quote. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, they're pretty clear on this, aren't they? He hath particularly appointed one day in seven 
in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Article 8, it says, The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Well, that's typical thoroughness from the Westminster Divines. The 1689 Baptist Confession was just the Westminster Confession, so-called baptized. And so these Westminster uh, theologians were very careful in their art articulation, but they say this is a binding commitment on all people, all ages, all time, because of God's original creation. Um, New Hampshire Confession of Faith in 1833, Article 15 says, We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, and is to be kept sacred to all religious purposes by abstaining from all secular labor and sinful recreations. I find that interesting. Talk about that in a moment. Abstaining from all secular labor, labor and sinful recreations by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest that remaineth for all for the people of God. Now, the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1833, was the foundation for the Baptist Faith and Message of 1925. I find it interesting the comment I made about abstaining from all sinful. Was it sinful recreations on the Lord's Day? Doesn't that open up a question in your mind? What question comes to you? Somebody tell me what question pops in your mind. It's okay the other six days, right? Sinful recreation, okay on those six days, but certainly not on the Lord's Day. So, anyway. Um, but we get their point. We understand these things were to be abstained from. Um, the real question is, what about lawful recreations? And that's the issue that Eric Little was struggling with, wasn't it? What about running? You know, what about playing soccer? You know, in the middle of, of the movie, he, he sees a boy playing soccer on the Lord's Day and says, the Lord's Day is not a day for playing soccer, is it? Now, that's the question in front of us, isn't it? Now, in uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925 and 1963, which is still your statement of faith, uh, mine too, uh, since I'm a member of this church, the First Baptist Church has 1963 statement of faith. I think it would be worth it for us to look again at the statement of faith and see if we can adopt the 2000 uh, statement of faith, but we can discuss that in due time. But uh, this is what the article says in the Baptist Faith Message 1963. On the Lord's Day, it says uh, that, well, just picking up in the middle of the quote, refraining from worldly amusements and resting from secular employments, work of necessity and mercy only being accepted. Activities on the Lord's Day should be, um, well, refraining from worldly amusements and resting from secular employments, works of necessity and mercy only being accepted. But then in, in 2001, or in 2000, the Baptist Faith and Message was changed, and the article was amended. And this is what it says now. This is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Now listen, 
activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, which of the two did, did those that wrote that statement lean to? Don't you see that that is a clear statement of, a free, of freedom in this matter? Whereas the others were saying this is a binding restriction on all people for all time, no matter what, etc. You can see then the articulation, and that's why this is a complex issue. Those that are writing this kind of thing, activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience, I think are thinking very much of Romans 14 when they write it and saying that this is not something anybody should judge you on, this is what you should do. Uh, but the Baptist faith and message before that said that we should refrain from worldly amusements and resting from secular employments, etc. Now what I think we should do is actually take a moment now and look at the text itself. What does the commandment say? Uh, what did it mean to the people who received it at the first time? And uh, how shall we understand it? And I think we should spend the rest of our time this evening doing that. Verse 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here we are dealing with the issue of the Sabbath day. Now the support for this commandment, which is given in the Ten Commandments, is found in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says this. This is after the uh, six-day creation that we get in Genesis 1. And then a summary statement in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So this is the foundation as the commandment itself says uh, to the Sabbath regulation. The word Sabbath then literally means cease or desist or stop or rest. That's what the Hebrew word usually means. For example, you get this in uh, Genesis 8.22. As long as earth endures, this is what God said to Noah, as long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. That's the same Hebrew word. It means to stop. Uh, Pharaoh's complaint in uh, Exodus 5.5, again Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. It's the same Hebrew word. Stop working. It has to do with the word stop. The first observance recorded in the scripture was when the manna was given. And I find that interesting. There's no, there's no um, observance of the Sabbath anywhere in the book of Genesis. I find that fascinating. The first time that you actually see it enjoined on the consciences of people uh, is after the Exodus uh, when God gives the manna. Do you remember how it worked? There was enough manna every day for one day. So every day they were to go out and, and get one day's worth of manna. They were not to keep it for a midnight snack or early breakfast or whatever because God would provide some again the next day. So that each day they would collect enough for that one day and they disobeyed. As you remember, the Israelites gathered too much. Some of them did gather too much and in the morning they found that it was filled with maggots. And God said, you know, I told you, don't do it and now look what you've done. But that, there was an exception on that. On the sixth day, as uh, they were going out, they were commanded specifically to gather enough for two days. And to not go out the next day and gather any, because there wouldn't be any. 
neither would there be any maggots in, those, in that which was kept overnight. They could bake or boil or prepare whatever they wanted and it would keep overnight by a miracle, really, because you had the maggots you know, on Tuesday, but you don't have the maggots on the seventh day. And so uh, that's the first time that the Sabbath is set apart. This is in Exodus 16, 23 and following. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever's left and keep it till morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now commentators have noted that one of the reasons that this whole, for the whole manna cycle uh, here in the desert is that the people probably had lost all track of time in terms of what was the first day and what was the seventh day or whatever. They were slaves in Egypt. And some archaeologists have told us that they probably worked a 10-day work, work week, if not more. Um, there was no resting on any seventh day. They just worked until they dropped dead. And so they had to have this pattern of six days and one, six days and one reestablished, and God did it by means of the manna. But I'm just saying this is the first time that an actual observance of the, of the Sabbath rest is shown in Scripture other than the original Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Now, what are we commanded to do in the um, regulation? What were the Israelites commanded? What does the, wor what does the word say? in Exodus 28 and following. Well, first of all, they were to remember the Sabbath day. They were to remember it. They were to think. It was a thinking thing. All right, there's a way that they were to remember it. They were to remember it by keeping it holy, but they had to think. It, it, was, a, it was a mental observance as much as anything. Yes, they were going to stop working, but they had to think. Well, what were they to remember? Well, he says later in the command, they are to remember that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh he rested. And so they're to think about God. They're to think about his creative power. They're to think about his, his uh, rest on the seventh day and its significance. And they were to do it by keeping it holy themselves. Now what does it mean to keep it holy? Well, the word literally means to be sacred or set apart unto God for his sacred purposes in this case. It doesn't mean pure and undefiled uh, from evil here, but I think it means separate unto God. It is his day separate unto him. It is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That's what it literally says. It's his. It's a day unto him. Genesis 2-3, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. See, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Exodus 20 verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then Exodus 20:11, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, you are to be like God in this matter. God made it holy, so you also should make it holy. It's a day set apart unto him. Now, the essence of this, of the command, is a ceasing or stopping or resting. That's what the word Sabbath literally means. It doesn't mean seventh. It means stopping or ceasing. That's what the word means. So, in nine, verse 9 and 10, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Now, a secondary aspect of this command is you're supposed to work hard for six days. 
You see that in verse 9? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, some people think the work is post-fall. In other words, after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed them by giving them work. I know some children have that attitude, you know. And we have to say, no, actually, work predated the fall. It was that work itself was cursed and made more difficult because of the fall. But God is a worker. He's a creator. He makes things. And so he creates and so we are to work hard. And frankly, if you are going to observe the Sabbath the way the Jews do, I mean, different in that we would celebrate the Lord's Day, but you're going to work hard in the hours leading up to it so that you can clear out the time to have a Sabbath rest. So six days you shall labor. All right? We are to be hard workers. There's no room for sloth in the Christian life, no room for laziness. Uh, there's no room for this kind of laid-back ease. And frankly, in my study this week on the Lord's Day, the Puritans, the others that I read, showed that it was also to be an energetic day. It wasn't a slothful day. It was a day of focus and, and of worship and of prayer and of reading the Bible and of listening to sermons and of energy in the service of the Lord. So it wasn't just a day for kicking back. It wasn't a lazy boy day. Now you're wondering, okay, then when is the lazy boy day? Well, I'll leave that to you to figure out. Six days you shall labor. The seventh day is a day unto the Lord. Okay, so I'm not saying you shouldn't have a lazy boy. That's not what I'm saying. It's amazing how things get taken out of context. I'm not saying that. But it is a command here, in effect, that we shall work hard. All right, but the seventh day we are to cease, or the command is to stop, to cease, to desist from working. And so they collected twice as much food the day before the Sabbath, and they did all their work ahead of time, but uh, they rested. Now, what is the extent of the rest? It says, not just you, but everyone in your home is to have this rest. And this gives an indication that the Sabbath is what the Westminster Divine said, universally binding on all people, whether they were under the covenant or not. That basically, remember, he's going to say in another place in Deuteronomy, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, remember what it was like for you. And so if you have anyone in your home that's working, etc., they must also stop, they must rest. So God extended the Sabbath rest to everyone, whether they believed in him or not. He actually extends it even to the animals, and they certainly don't believe in him. So there's a symbolic rest here, not just for those who are under the covenant. We have here also an assessment of human limitation in the matter. Now the reason, above all, I think, is an acknowledgement of God's sovereign rule over the creation. People say, why did God rest? Was he really tired? Was he <laughs> fatigued in all his creating? I mean, it takes a lot of work to create a universe, and on the seventh day he rested, that was going on? No. God never grows weary. He never gets tired. He never slumbers or sleeps. That's not what it's about. Well, then what was the nature of God's rest? Well, I think Meredith Klein, my Old Testament hermeneutics professor, really put it very well. This is an issue of kingly rule. If you could imagine that the six-day creation made, in effect, a throne room for God, and a throne on which he would sit. And if you could imagine a, a picture of a king just moving right down that, that, that red carpet, right to the dais, going up the stairs, turning around, everyone looking at the king, and then he sits on his throne to rule over what he's made. Listen to what Meredith Klein said. Sabbath marked consummation of God's creation, but it also marked the enthronement of God as ruler over all. 
this rest of God may be more specifically understood as a royal kind of resting. The royal nature of the rest follows from the royal nature of his work. God created the heaven and the earth to be his cosmic palace, and accordingly his resting is an occupying of his palace, a royal sitting on the throne. The dawning of the Sabbath witness uh, witnesses a new enthronement of God. I tell you, I like to think of this when I think of the so-called Sabbath rest. I like to think of God sitting on his throne. Remember that Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. God willing, we'll discuss that in two weeks and its relevance to our understanding of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying, though? Don't think that God ceases or desists from all work ever. And why do we say that? Because you realize that God is holding the universe together at every single moment. In Christ, all things hold together. It takes energy to continue holding the universe together. And so God never stops doing his providential, energetic work. So, Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day. Even on the seventh day, he had to continue doing that work, or what? We have no universe. The universe will be gone. So it's a different kind of rest, a symbolic rest, I, and I like what Meredith Klein says, a kingly rest where he's sitting down as a king, ruling over his creation. Therefore, it says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. And so a present focus for us, I think, on the Lord's Day is remembering that God is a king and that after he made the physical universe, he sat down by right on his throne to rule over it. So one day in seven, we set apart to acknowledge his kingly rulership over all things. Secondly, we also recognize that it is a prophetic uh, look ahead for us, just like the Lord's Supper is. We're looking ahead to the uh, return of the Lord and to his kingdom. So also the Sabbath rest is a looking ahead to when all of that kind of work will be finished forever, and we will be consummated or perfect in heaven, looking ahead to heaven's rest. Now, that's all the time we have for tonight. God willing, in two weeks, I'm going to talk about those issues on each side of that question and then tell you where I come down on this and how I think I'm going to advocate that a, uh, a Sabbath rest uh, on the Lord's Day is beneficial to the Christian. Beneficial to the Christian, but I still believe in a different category than, than any of the other uh, nine commandments. I believe that there's a fulfillment here, but at the same time, this is what I think. It's a, a matter of Christian freedom, but you should do it. You should do it. You should set apart one day in seven unto the Lord because you need it and because the Lord has commanded it. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.